Section 5 of Over Here and Over There by Private Harry Zodi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. A Hot Night For the past few days our sector had been exceptionally quiet, save for an occasional reciprocal shelling. We were very proud to be the first Americans to be engaged in actual warfare with the Germans. We had become accustomed to our new quarters, which were really far from comfortable, and the sound of shells whistling through the air was no longer a novelty, but had become part of our routine, as it were. We were now experts in the art of dodging those shells, bearing our name and address, and it was great fun to watch those whiz-bangs explode nearby, throwing up geysers of mud and rocks. Sometimes I could not help comparing the front with a vaudeville show. The different acts followed each other promptly. One of the most interesting things for us to watch was the flight of aeroplanes, allied as well as German, reconnoitering and trying to locate each other's artillery positions. As soon as one of these planes appeared over the enemy's lines, it was invariably received with a hot fire, which compelled it either to turn back or to ascend at great speed, to such an altitude that the reconnoitering would be of practically no value. It was a clear day, and though spring was yet far away, the sky was spotlessly blue, and the sun was powerful enough to make us forget the severe cold which had chilled our bones for many weeks. Suddenly, during the early morning hours, we heard the distinct drone of motors steadily increasing in sound. We rushed out of our dugouts, and there unfolded itself, away up in the sky, one of those by no means unusual yet always intensely interesting spectacles. Five German biplanes approached our lines at an altitude of approximately 6,000 feet, without being disturbed in the least by our anti-aircraft batteries, and proceeded to circle above our lines. They evidently did not have the courage to come lower, or to penetrate our lines any further than our front-line trenches. After keeping up this game for at least 15 minutes, and evidently thinking that our artillery considered it useless to waste shells on them, two of the planes suddenly made a nosedive, descending to within a 500-feet level, and suddenly poured a rain of machine-gun bullets into our front trenches. In less than no time, all of our men who were not assigned to any particular outside duty disappeared into the dugouts. The Huns had copied this trick of the French aviators, who often went low over the German lines and created havoc with their machine guns. Except for a few rifle bullets fired by a sentry, these two planes made their escape without being disturbed. Then came the surprise. The overconfident Huns had failed to watch closely, and before they were aware of it, Three French machines suddenly appeared on the scene and engaged three of the German planes, showering bullets upon them, bringing one crashing to the earth, where a few well-placed shells from our guns completed the work of destruction. One more German plane was seen to drop, but it succeeded in reaching the German lines. The other three made their escape, followed by a fierce anti-aircraft fire. Word reached us from headquarters to be prepared for an attack. Shortly after noon, the enemy artillery began to become very active, and shells of all calibers fell in front of our trenches, some of them into our trenches, and the men stationed in the rear also got their share. The gas alarm was sounded over the entire sector, as many of the projectiles were filled with poison gas. For more than two hours we were kept in suspense, unable to doff our gas masks for a single minute. Finally the bombardment ceased and silence reigned once more. Only a few hundred yards behind us were the remains of what had once been a flourishing French village near the Lorraine border. 
Occasionally the silence was broken by the sad howl of a dog, which through all these weary months and years had not yet given up the search for his master, who was either dead or somewhere in the trenches, fighting for liberty. Soon darkness began to spread its ghostly wings over the picturesque landscape. A gray hill within the German lines, in front of us, began to melt away in the dusk, and finally disappeared altogether from our sight. With the appearance of the first star, life in our lines seemed to spring up. Patrols silently moved through the communicating trenches. Sentries took their posts. Our machine guns were brought into position, and our men received instructions from our officers as to what to do in case of danger. The nerve-wracking tension was almost unbearable, waiting for the unknown and the unseen. Suddenly the darkness was pierced by a considerable number of sky rockets of various colors, sent up by the Germans, immediately followed by some of our powerful star shells, which threw a brilliant light over no man's land. At the very same moment a chorus of wild, inhuman voices was heard, intermingled with the explosion of hand grenades and the firing of rifles and pistols. From my observation post I had a clear view of the scene. One of our patrols, composed of ten men, which had been inspecting the barbed wire entanglements in front of our position, suddenly found itself surrounded by a detachment of approximately sixty Germans. Our men bravely resisted, though greatly outnumbered, and refused to surrender. By the light of the increasing number of rockets I was able to observe how some of the Boches actually threw up their hands, shouting, Kamerad! Kamerad! thus trying to simulate surrender. Our men, however, were wise to this trick, which had often been tried before. They preferred death to capture. One of our men succeeded in breaking through the encircling ring of enemies and reached our post, shouting that they were all dead. Thereupon our machine guns sent a barrage across no man's land, and those of the Germans who had not been killed or severely wounded retired at great speed. Less than five minutes after this encounter took place, about twenty of us volunteered to go and recover the wounded. After making three trips under a hail of German machine-gun fire, we succeeded in bringing in twenty-three German dead, eight severely wounded, whereas six of our men had been killed, two wounded, and one was missing. Here was one more proof that our men always give a good account of themselves. Another period of silence. It was close to midnight when the sky suddenly turned blood-red. Then a series of loud explosions. At first I could not make out what this might be. It was such an impressive scene that, though it lasted but a few seconds, I stood absolutely motionless. However, I immediately realized the responsibilities connected with my observation post. Hell seemed to have broken loose, and I felt like one of the damned in Dante's Inferno. One of the most terrific bombardments I had ever been in ensued. When I was able to think the situation over, I realized that the Germans were sending over enormous quantities of poison gas and cylinders which were being fired from trench mortars in their front-line trenches. I estimated the speed of the wind at between 15 and 20 miles an hour. I tried and succeeded in keeping my nerves under control, and took the field telephone in order to turn in the alarm for the entire sector and the rear. I knew that I would not be able to use the telephone with my gas mask adjusted, and yet I realized that gas waves would reach my post in a few seconds. There was no time to hesitate. Through some unforeseen circumstance it took some time to get the right connection, but I succeeded in sending the gas alert through our lines. Meanwhile I got several whiffs of the gas which caused a choking feeling in my throat. My eyes began to get heavy and I had a feeling as if my head was made of lead. 
yet I had to stick to my post. After hanging up the receiver, I tried to put on my gas mask for my own protection, but could not keep it on, owing to the strangling sensation in my throat. With death staring me in the face, I leaned my head in my hands. Amid the flames and smoke rising before me, I saw a vision of home, of love. Like a reel, my past life seemed to unroll before my eyes. With trembling hand, I fumbled for the picture of the girl I left behind. And with a last fond glance upon those beloved features, I pressed my lips upon them. My eyes grew dim, and then darkness and oblivion. Private Harry Zodi End of Section 5